Hi there and welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. So, Virginia, today we're going to be talking about some Indigenous authors that you and I have been um, reading this week. Yes. I've been reading the Australian author Bruce Pascoe. And if he's not familiar to our listeners, he's um, an extremely accomplished writer. Most of all, for me, he's just a wonderful storyteller. So, Black Ink Publishers have recently published Salt, which is a collection of Bruce Pascoe's stories and essays. And Salt draws some of its themes from another and really quite momentous and widely popular book that Pascoe wrote a few years ago called Dark Emu, and that was published by uh, Magabala Books. And he won the Book of the Year and the Indigenous Writers' Prize for the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards in 2016 for Dark Emu. And then interestingly, this year, he's also published a version of Dark Emu um, that's been rewritten for school-aged children called Young Dark Emu. Yes, I saw that beautiful edition in the bookshop. Yeah, no, really good idea. Really good idea. So Pascoe is a really interesting man. He was raised in a working-class family in Richmond in Melbourne, and they were to all intents and purposes a white family, although he does remember a few snippets that sort of pervaded his younger years when adults would allude to there being some Aboriginal heritage in his family. Um, His uncle would occasionally refer to it. And Pascoe was also jeered at school for having thick lips. I'm not going to repeat the taunt, but uh, it really wasn't very nice at all. And he went to university and he became a teacher. But in his 30s, he, you know, began to question his heritage more seriously. His first marriage was failing and he decided that he really wanted to become a full-time writer. And so he moved at the same time to the Otways. For those of you that don't know, that part of Australia is on the southernmost tip of Victoria. It's where the Southern Ocean meets the Bass Straits on the western side of Victoria. And he and his then partner decided that they would set up a small publishing company to produce a quarterly fiction magazine, and that was Australian Short Story. And that publication became really important for emerging writers at the time. It was launched in 1982 by Bob Hawke, actually, and the first edition of Australian Short Story sold 12,000 copies, which is quite significant. And then throughout the 80s, it became an important first publisher for um, writers such as Helen Garner and Gillian Mears and Tim Winton also had some of their early pieces published and even Elizabeth Jolly, our, our own Elizabeth Jolly. Oh, wow. And the magazine sadly closed in 2000, but during that period of time, Bruce Pascoe had also written several novels and short stories himself, and uh, some of those stories are now in this new volume, Salt, that I'm talking about today. But it was this sort of process of examining his Aboriginal heritage that had the greatest impact on Pascoe, and he discovered that he was related to the Bunurong tribe from Port Phillip Bay, 
which is part of the Kulin Nation, also sometimes referred to as Kuri. And he was also of significant Yuan heritage, which I think is the New South Wales coast, and Tasmanian Aboriginal heritage as well. So he sort of set himself out to become immersed in Indigenous language, and he soon fully identified as a Kuri man. And he came to the very firm view that the traditional narrative history that he had learned at school, and that which you and I had learned yeah. at school, and in fact mm. which people are still learning at school, namely that the earliest Australian people were nomadic and they were hunter-gatherers with no real fixed abode, was a false narrative. Yes. And I think it's not overstating it to say that what came with that was an inference that that mode of existence has less value yeah. than a population that's perhaps settled down and created its own economy. And what Pascoe discovered for himself, and this was the thesis for his book Dark Emu, was that there was evidence that Aboriginal people had in fact, prior to colonisation, farmed the land. So there was evidence of cultivation, of harvest, of irrigation and built dwellings. And in some places they were living in settled villages. And so in Dark Emu he relies considerably upon the diaries and the journal entries of the earliest explorers. And these are explorers um, from across the whole of Australia. And those explorers recorded their observations of the land, cleared land, dams, wells and the crops that Aboriginals were tending to, yams, kangaroo grasses and types of native millet and oat. And their ev the evidence that they saw of buildings and settlements and also their observations of Aboriginal people and their interactions with them. And, look, I found this part of, the, of Dark Emu really fascinating yeah. because he reproduces the passages from the journals and diaries of Thomas Mitchell and Charles Sturt. There's also some records from the Bush Camellia, uh, Walter Smith, who himself was part Indigenous, and many other people who were in charge of, of the new areas of settlement and he's got some records there from settlers who also reflect similar observations and experience. So it's in, it's incredible to read the passages from these journals. And that's what, what you, when you're studying history, that's primary source material. It doesn't get any better than exactly, that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Now, credit where credit is due, Pascoe relies heavily on, a, you know, the depth of research undertaken by two contemporary Australian historians, that's Rupert Gerritsen and Bill Gamage, and they've both published significant books and they both support this sort of revisionist view of Aboriginals as being farmers. And Pascoe credits Gerritsen with much of the underlying research for his book. The difference, though, is that Pascoe goes one step further and he says that the hunter-gatherer-only version of history was a deliberate choice by white people to diminish the value of Aboriginal worth and their connection to the land. And, you know, that, that obviously is a view that has some controversy, but... I can certainly see yeah. why he takes that view. Yeah. And, of course, tragically, post-1820s, 1830s, very many Aboriginals were killed. They clashed with the settlers. There was a lot of conflict. And then there was also the disease that the colonists brought with them. And, of course, the settlers imposed their own form of farming and agriculture on the land. So by the late 1800s, a lot of the evidence of Aboriginal farming disappeared. But for me personally, one of the important legacies of Dark Emu is what Pascoe asks us to learn from the ecology that the settlers found in Australia um, of the early 1800s, so the Indigenous crops, yes. you know, the grasses and the grains and the yams, and also the Aboriginal approach to land care. And, you know, he now leaves us with this plea to investigate those methods of cultivation further. And, you know, he sort of persuades us that we've got much to learn 
from the original state of the land as the colonists first found it. And interestingly, there are some areas of land that they're finding have some of those crops now growing. I think they found kangaroo grass and various other native crops. What, that date back from that well, original It's areas of lands that just haven't been... So it's almost like haven't that's the natural with. state they haven't been interfered oh. with. So he wants us to look at... Aboriginal agriculture as a way of restoring our land, returning water to the land yes. significantly, and sort of developing more sustainable agricultural practices. And he himself has started to farm, and I believe he's set up a company to do with Indigenous bush tucker and seeds and, and, and farming and stuff. So don't know enough about that to sort of talk authoritatively about it, but he's certainly putting his money where his mouth is, that's for sure. So that brings me to SALT, um, which was released just a few weeks ago. And SALT is a collection of Pascoe's writing over the last 30 years. So it includes some of his essays and lectures, uh, touching on the topics that I've just mentioned, but it also includes some wonderful fiction. And so for me, it reads sort of like a best of, a best of right. Bruce Pascoe. It brings together the sort of the ideas and themes of Dark Emu and, you know, the stories that really record his voyage to connect with his Aboriginal heritage but it's also got some uniquely Australian stories from the past and present. So, look, it's it's a really, it's in a uniquely Australian collection and I, and I really enjoyed it. There's a, a short story called Thylacine in it, which is the story of two brothers in Tasmania, Douglas and Clary. Their fathers died and, you know, you, you have this very instantly in this short story, you have this very acute picture of two men coexisting and barely interacting. They don't talk a great deal. And now Douglas thinks that he's discovered a Tasmanian tiger who hangs around their garden at night and he's developing a bit of an attachment to the animal. And then another man in the town reports that he's seen a Tasmanian oh. tiger and he's ridiculed by, you know, his friends in the town. So Douglas stays silent and doesn't tell anyone and he certainly doesn't tell his brother. I'm not going to tell you the ending, but it's an inevitable ending, but it's a perfectly wow. executed oh, story. It's really, really good. good. And then there's another very short story. It's just three pages called Unapproved Day, and that's about an abalone diver fishing for his half quota of abalone, but on an unapproved day. Oh, right. And it's delightful, and I suspect it's from personal experience. And then there's a lovely story that concludes with his mother's death. I suspect this isn't fiction, but it starts with a beautiful interaction between him and a pelican. Aww. And in fact, many of the stories, you know, you get a real sense of his sort of genuine connection to the land and our fauna and that he really bears witness to his surroundings. Yeah. So those stories are lovely. And then, of course, there's some essays in there that really pack a punch politically. Um, there's an essay that's written as a letter to John, which is a reference to John Howard. I was going to say, I can imagine which John. Yes. Yeah. And then there's one entitled Andrew Bolt's Disappointment. Bolt is, of course, the Herald Sun and Sky News conservative commentator, and he has taken issue with in the Indigenous heritage of Pasco and other white-skinned Australians. And, and it's interesting, Pasco's reaction is not what you might think. Unlike some of the others that have been criticised, Pascoe just says he wishes Bolt would just sit down and have a chat and a drink with him because yeah. he thinks they'd have a lot to yarn about. And I think that's kind of the perfect way to describe the collection because 
All of the stories and essays are extremely thought-provoking and there's a lot to have a yarn about. Yes. Um, so, look, I highly... That tells you so much about the sort of person he is, Absolutely, yeah, that, that you know, because he reflected on Bolt's own uh, status as an immigrant from Holland and, you know, talks really about, look, why don't we just sit down mm. and chat about this? So, look, highly recommend yeah. Salt. Be a great gift. I really want to read that now, Lou. That sounds great. And what have you been reading? Um, well... I've been reading two novels and one of them uh, in the acknowledgements thanks Bruce Pascoe for writing ah, Dark okay. Emu and steering her in the right direction wow. and he's obviously very influential. Mm. I think they obviously have quite a nice connection and, in fact, in one of the books it talks about that old rule that we used to learn in history where it says the books say a civilization must meet four criteria. It must show house building, domestication of animals, agricultural activity and reverence for the dead. Wow. And they were all the four that it was said the Australian Indigenous community did not have. And, of course, I think Bruce Pascoe has put that Completely debunked that theory. Yeah, exactly. So the two books that I have read are Too Much Lip by Melissa Lukashenko, which I read first, and then this week I read The Yield by Tara June Winch, and I was really struck by the completely fluky similarities between the two stories. I'm not for a moment suggesting that either one copied the other. Tara June Winch lives in France and Melissa Lukashenko lives in, I think, northern New South Wales. And I'm sure they were just working away on their manuscripts quite separately and the books have come out within a short period of time of each other. But they both have a young Indigenous woman coming back to the family home in New South Wales. One's coming back to see a dying grandfather and one's coming back for his funeral. Um, In both of them, there's a sister that went missing years ago. And in both, there's a threat to the land by outside commercial interests. Um, In one, in Too Much Lip, the threat is a development of an island to develop a prison. And in The Yield, it's a tin mine. And the mining company is interestingly called Rhine Palm Mining, (laughs) which is an interesting (laughs) blend, I suspect, of Reinhardt and Palmer. Uh, And and then in both families, there's this terrible history of a mission where ancestors had been taken and uh, the terrible treatment that those ancestors had experienced. And that sort of hangs over succeeding generations. And both books, I think, beautifully evoke the spirituality of their family and their community. They have wonderful uh, moments where crows speak and the elders come back to them and speak to them and there's a very strong spirituality through both books. It's really beautiful. And in both books there are very sinister, mendacious men in both families and there's a, a, a recurring theme of one sister putting up with abuse in order to protect the other Mm. sister, which is pretty awful. But they do have a very different feel and the writing style is quite different and the stories pan out differently in some respects. So the first one, Too Much Lip, recently won the Miles Franklin Award, rightly so, I think, and it, it opens up with the opening of Chapter 1, says, A stranger rode into town, only it wasn't a stranger, it was Kerry, come to say goodbye to Pop before he fell off that perch he'd been clinging to real stubborn way for so long. And, of course, that's a little reference by Melissa Lukashenko to Leo Tolstoy's belief that all literature is one of two stories, a man goes on a journey or a stranger comes to town. Oh, it's fantastic, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and, and when you think about it, most books that you read mm. 
are one one or other of mm. those. Sometimes both. And sometimes both. Yeah, exactly. So Kerry arrives on this very snazzy Harley Davidson and she has a mysterious backpack full of money and she hasn't been home for a while. The family are all living in this very dilapidated house which is falling apart and in the house there's her mother. There's Her mother's called Pretty Mary. There are lots of Marys in the family because they all got named Mary on the mission. There's her brother Ken who has a problem with anger and alcohol and his teenage son who has anorexia. And then there's the grandfather Pop. And then also visiting is another brother called Black Superman and his partner and their foster children. And then there's this evil mayor called Jim Buckley and he's the sort of family nemesis and he wants to develop this island which is sacred to the family where some of the family members are buried and his grandfather had been Sergeant Buckley and there's been this long history between the two families where Sergeant Buckley had done terrible things to their ancestors and there's also a terrible corrupt policeman, Nunny, whose grandfather was also a violent policeman. So there's this long history between the two and there's a missing sister, Donna, and having a missing person in the family has left this terrible scar on everyone. They just can't move on. They haven't had a funeral. Mm. They don't know what happened to her. Pretty Mary is convinced that she's alive somewhere and they all talk about her. They know how, exactly how old she would be at any given time and they're just stuck. It's such a common problem in yeah, Australia. absolutely. Yeah, um, so it's almost a inertia. Yes, it's not like being able to have a funeral no, and say goodbye no, and, and move no forward. There's no closure. There's no no closure. So I, I did have a look because I thought this is such a common problem, and it, it turns out that I think it's something like thirty eight thousand people per year go missing in Australia, and I think the majority are found eventually. But there's a good almost three thousand that are not located after three months and are called long-term. 38,000 is a huge yeah. statistic. Now, some of them are deliberate and some are not. Yeah, nevertheless, it's a lot of it's people. It's a massive number. It's a huge number per week go, that are reported missing. I wonder what the age breakdown mm. is on that. love to know that. It's fascinating. Mm. So Kerry comes back and then events unfold. She has to decide whether she's going to stay and help the family over the issue about the potential development of the island or whether she's going to go back to her own life in Queensland. And then there are lots of twists and turns and family secrets that emerge. And it's a very clever, twisty plot. Sounds quite layered. Quite layered. It's written in a very colloquial language. So it's uh, very Aussie, but that gives it a real authenticity. It's... um unputdownable. It's very warm. The family, there's quite a bit of humour. I absolutely loved it. And there's moments where you laugh. And even though there's some very sad and shocking revelations that come out, the underlying warmth of the Indigenous family just shines through. So you absolutely love this family. And they're very ramshackle, warts and all sort of family. I really loved that one. The other one is The Yield. So Tara June Winch is a Wiradjuri woman, but she lives in France with her husband and children. She's created this sort of fictional family called the Gondawindi family in New South Wales and a fictional place called Massacre Plains and a mission that was called Prosperous Lutheran Mission, which has now just become her grandparents' family home. So the, the main character is a girl called August Gondawindi and she comes back into town for Poppy Albert's funeral and she comes in on a 
in a hire car this time, but she and her sister had been raised by their grandparents, the mothers in prison. You just get told there's just a one-liner where someone says, oh, is your mum coming back for the funeral? And she says, oh, she might get day release. Mm, That's really what you're told until near the end. So in this one, there's a sister, Jedda, who went missing at the age of 11. And once again, the whole family are stuck. There's been no funeral. They don't know whether she's alive or not. When August comes back, she calls out to her grandmother in the shed and the grandmother's first comment is, Jedda, is that you? Because she thinks it's the the missing granddaughter. Still expecting her to walk in. That was her first thought, that it might be the missing daughter. So in this one, August left at a very young age. We don't really know why in the beginning. She went overseas to Britain and basically never came back. So this story has three alternating threads throughout the story. One strand is Poppy Albert. He wrote a dictionary of the language. So every third chapter is his dictionary, but it's quite a verbose dictionary in the sense that he'll write a word and then there'll be a huge paragraph behind the word. Yes. So it's not just, you know, this means that. It's it's explaining the word. It talks about how you pronounce it, what that means, um, where it was used, things that happened in to context. him. It's very contextual. It's beautiful. Yeah. And it tells you so mm, much about him and the history. And then another strand is just August experiencing this preparation for the funeral and the sort of present day. And then the third strand is a series of letters from a Reverend Greenleaf in 1915. And he was the Lutheran minister who set up the the mission. mission, And he's trying to paint himself as a saint. He wasn't at all. Just sort of whitewashing history or... Yeah, re- rewriting history, partly because he he was of German descent. He was interned in 1915 during World War One, and there was a lot of anti-German feeling. And I think he experienced for the first time what it felt like to be criticised and judged based on your heritage yeah. and treated differently and cast out and all the things that had happened to the people that he had taken onto the mission so the boot was on the other the foot. parallels yeah. very interesting yeah so in this one um, a mining company the Ryan Palm mining company has discovered that there's tin at Prosperous which is the big sprawling house where the grandparents lived and they're literally about to start mining sort of next week so things are quite urgent and Once again, August, the main character, has to decide whether she's going to stay and help her grandmother and all the aunties and so on fight the mining company or whether she's going to go back to her her own life. And once again, lots of interesting twists and turns. I'm not going to give any spoilers. Lots of family secrets, plenty of drama. August has heard from a relative that her grandfather was writing a book, but she can't find it anywhere. Mm. She's searching through the whole house, so there's something not right, and that then leads to lots of drama. This one, the writing's very lyrical. It's beautiful writing, and it's a little bit stream of consciousness. It's a little bit more about feelings than sort of thought and not that much direct dialogue. And there are lots of themes of violence and intergenerational trauma and white men giving alcohol to the Aboriginal women and then raping them and and then the children from those white men being taken away and that sort of thing. So they're both excellent and I really hope that Tara June Winch wins an award for this yes. one in the next round of um, 
book prizes. So yeah, excellent. I imagine um, that Bruce has read both of those books. Yeah, or will be sure, reading sure both those books has. himself. Yes, yeah. I'm sure he has. So, Lou, uh, what else have you been diving into recently? Uh, well, I recently had four days away at Cine Festos. Oh, yes. Which is the fantastic film festival that we have in the southwest of Western Australia. It sort of follows on the heels of the Sydney and Melbourne film festivals. But, you know, we're very proud of it here in Western Australia because, you know, it's down in our wine and food country down in the southwest. And so a lot of the films that you see, they're not just in cinemas, you see them at restaurants and cafes and you see them at vineyards. And it's, it's just, it's an amazing event. And if you can take the full five days to experience the festival, that it's really pretty unforgettable. Is it well attended? Oh, incredibly attended. There's a, a film jury, as there is at most film festivals, and there's five or six major feature films that are part of the film prize. And this year, H for Happiness won. But I didn't end up seeing that movie. I ended oh. up seeing a couple of other of the major feature films and lots of little films. Oh. And I'm going to talk about two of those today. So the one that was an absolute standout for me uh, was Emu Runner. That also featured at Sydney and Melbourne this year and it was also invited last year to screen at the Toronto Film Festival. Uh, You've just got emus everywhere. I know we do. <laughs> we really do because they're such a sacred animal yeah, and yeah. sacred to particular Indigenous groups um, yeah. in New South Wales. So this was a debut for a director, Imogen Thomas, but she made it in very close collaboration with an Indigenous community in Brewarrina in New South Wales and, in fact, uh, the director and the Aboriginal lady that she collaborated with attended the screening oh, that wonderful. we were at. And, and that's another feature of Sydney Festivals is that you really do get to mingle with some of the actors, the, the producers, the directors, and you really learn the process that they go through a in bit trying of to... The yeah, it's fantastic. So the, the movie centres on a little girl called Jem and she's a young Indigenous girl whose mother dies and it sort of sets her on a bit of a quest to seek comfort in her ancestral land and she forms a bond with a wild emu. The uh, cinematography is beautiful, the light of the bush and oh. of, of the animal and, and basically the emu, in an essence, helps her sort of rebuild her spirit and her confidence. But, of course, it brings her into conflict with the people in her town because she's going around stealing snacks, to stealing food emu. to feed oh. the emu. And so she unfortunately attracts the attention of the local police and a local social worker. And then her hardworking father also gets himself into a bit of strife because apparently he's not parenting her properly. Oh. And there was a, a young girl, Ray Kai Waits, who was in the role of Jem, and she was 11 when she filmed the role. And her grandmother is actually one of the actors in the movie as well. It's, it's really, really, it's a very lyrical, poetic film. You, know, you really get a real sense of sort of um, country and community yeah. throughout it, and I absolutely recommend it. What's lovely is it's actually recommended for ages eight and up, and so at one of the screenings we were at, there were a lot of school children. Oh, that's delightful. Um, it's a really, really beautiful um, movie and I, I hopefully it will get some commercial release and um, people will get to see it because it's a beautiful Australian story. Then the other one which really stood out was Hearts and Bones and that was one of the major feature films of the festival. Again, it was a debut from director Ben Lawrence and had a little bit of star power because Hugo Weaving plays wow. the title role. In fact, Hugo Weaving was in a lot of the films of the festival. He gets a lot of work, he does, doesn't he? And he's just superb. Yeah, he's, he's very good. He's just superb. So he is playing the role of Daniel Fisher, who is essentially a war photographer. 
and he returns home, you know, and he basically comes home in between each dangerous assignment that he goes on. And he's also preparing for an upcoming exhibition of his photographs. And there's a South Sudanese refugee who's a taxi driver and he, I think he sees some promotional material for the exhibition and he tracks Daniel down to say to him, please don't show the photographs that you have from the village where I came from, where a massacre took place. And, you know, he doesn't want to be reminded of the massacre that took place in his village, although there is a bit of a twist, which I'm not going to go into. But the movie is about the relationship between these two guys and it's just superb. What was fascinating was that the actor who played Sebastian, the taxi driver from South Sudan, had never acted before. He was actually a garbage collector and he auditioned for the role. How wonderful. And I think he had to do, you know, lessons eight hours a day and he is absolutely superb. But it's a wonderful exploration of sort of this quite intricate relationship between the two of them and both of them give incredibly powerful performances. So it's a really, really fantastic fantastic. movie and I'm sure it will get some commercial release because it's just superb. So that's Hearts hearts and Bones. What have you been diving into? One thing I've been doing is watching the series Prohibition on Netflix, which I've been really enjoying. It's got the same narrator, Peter Coyote, who did the Roosevelt's series. This is just a little one. It's three parts. I'm a bit over halfway through. About Prohibition. Prohibition Prohibition in America. And the first episode's called A Nation of Drunkards. (laughs) And it's... Such an eye opener. Yeah. You know, life was very hard in that, yes. you know, particularly yeah. in the frontier towns. And alcohol was one it was pleasure, the big wasn't it? Really, panacea. Yeah. yeah, staggeringly high proportions of alcohol in the drinks. Yeah. And oh, you mean percentages? Is yeah, yes, oh, sorry, wow. percentages. Yeah. Yes, okay. yes, really strong liquor that they yeah. were drinking, sort of from sun up to sun down. <laughs> There's a shot of a big barn being built, and I think they used to stop on the hour. Um, to have a slug. Mm. Wow. And, so of course, the women really suffered and the children mm. really suffered. So it's the women who became quite active to do something mm. about this. And there's lots of early photographs, which I love. It's a real visual treat. So I've been loving that. So, so is it a documentary? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. And it just traces the path of the very first attempts at prohibition and then the the temperance movement mm. which I always find interesting because mm. it's not temperance at all it's abstinence but yes. for some reason it always got called the temperance movement mm. and the the pledges that they used to get mm. people to take and the effect of those so yeah it's very interesting so I'd recommend that one and then the other thing that I was diving into yesterday which was really interesting was an episode of conversations with Richard Fadler yes the ABC radio program, which is on the ABC podcast, and it's called Prepping for the Apocalypse, Bunkers, Bullets and Billionaires. And I had no idea about this, but it's a multi, multi multi-millionaire, million-dollar business where very wealthy people in America, about, I think he said 3.8 million Americans, have been building these bunkers for any number of different types of apocalyptic events. So the guy that Richard Feidler was interviewing has an archaeology background and teaches geography now, and he was talking about how there's this growing sense of dread in Mm. the world. There's social unrest, there's issues with climate change, politics is unravelling, there's threats of chemical warfare, there's issues in Korea, you know, you you can sort of name your 
apocalyptic event, I suppose. And so wealthy people in America are prepping and they're called preppers. And there are these communities springing up all over the place and they sort of focus in on one, which is in a place called Trident Lakes in Dallas. And the the developers are spending $330 million to develop this place. They're going to develop 700 bunkers in this community and not anyone can join it. So they hand select everyone. So everyone who wants to buy in has to demonstrate their potential contribution to the community. That's incredible. Yes. Because there's been some, I hate to say it, rubbishy shows on Foxtel for ages. I know my boys have watched them, Doomsday Preppers, but they well, always seem to be more outliers, people that I think there's both. were suspicious and, yes. you know, and that yes. sounds a bit more mainstream what you're talking about. This is about. much more mainstream. Yeah. This is the sort of the other end of the spectrum, I suppose. Yeah. So there's always been those Doomsday Preppers yeah. and there's also the Mormon Church, which encourages people to have 30 days of food in their cellar and that sort of thing because they... Yes. That's part of their it's religion come, that they yeah. believe there will be an apocalypse. So there's lots of different types of these. But yeah. I think this guy was particularly focusing on the very wealthy. wealthy yes. And there's going to be an airstrip and people will be able to fly their helicopter in at a moment's notice. And there are bowling alleys and cinemas and it's shooting just an range. excuse to sell more gadgets and more yeah, things to the rich people, isn't it? Really? Well, yeah, it's... A massive industry, and mm. he's, he, you know, they were discussing how it does seem a bit crazy. But the guy says, "Well, you know, in some ways, it's just at another string to the bow of the economy." So there's a lot of money being put into the actual bunkers. Then there's a car industry where people are all buying Hummers because they want to be able to escape in the event that there's some sort of event. I'm sorry, that, I shouldn't be laughing, I know, but it's, it's, you have to listen to it, Lou. It's incredible. And then the other one is the food, all of the freeze-dried meals that they have created and people turn up and buy all this stuff and the government is buying all this stuff. You do wonder whether the people behind the consumables are also driving some of the fear. I mean, because it's in their interests yes. that they create. Yes. I mean, look, I think there's probably a sector of the, the community that already feel that way. But, you know, that, I wonder if they're building up some of this like fear and suspicion. Like trying to create a need that you didn't know you had. Yeah, correct. <laughs> yeah, that's how it feels like to yes. me now that it's I'm, become I'm this. sure there is an element of that as well. I mean, he mentions these expos. Uh, you know, a giant expo in Salt Lake City, which was is all about, you know, doomsday preparation. <laughs> and apparently they get tens of thousands of people visiting. And I was driving along listening to this thinking, I think some of the people that go would would go out of an interest to sticky Oh, well, I just love to go. Mm. But I'm sure there's a huge proportion that go. And they do buy provisions or all these sort of food that they can store. It feels a bit freak show with a grain of truth yes, about it. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, there's, and, and, you know, and one of the big things that advertisers know is that fear is a huge motivator. And they so, bank on it, don't yes, they? they bank so on if it. you tap into people's fear, mm. so they talk about, you know, people have all got backpacks at the door with three days' worth of food and things <laughs> so they can just pick the bag up and head off in the event that they need to leave quickly. Need to start packing my backpack. Yeah, yeah. So it's really funny and re- it's quite a long interview and well worth listening to, Leo. I think you'd really enjoy it. Yeah, excellent. Mm. We really enjoyed today's episode and we hope you have too. You'll find a list of the books we've reviewed and anything else we've talked about today in the show notes. 
You'll also find some of the books featured on our Instagram page at diving underscore in underscore podcast. If you would like to share with us any books you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divingin.com. And wherever you listen to the Diving In podcast, whatever platform you use, we would appreciate it if you would please subscribe and take a minute to rate and review us because that will mean we can grow our audience. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Do you want to do that again? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> what was that? <laughs>